This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. The pandemic is subsiding. Vaccinations are rising and the phrase back to normal is heard with great prevalence. I'm also hearing in the back to normal conversation, people voicing the idea that they are not sure they want to go back to normal. That's okay because we are all forever changed by this pandemic. We are different. We've evolved. We've discovered a lot about the character of our nation and ourselves. We were exposed and not treated. Then we were diagnosed and vaccinated. We were at a loss, but we found our way. We struggled to make sense of it all, and then we adjusted. We were discouraged, yet determined. We learned, and now we must apply. Applying what we've learned about ourselves and the needs around food security across our communities begins with understanding prior to the pandemic that there were 1.3 million people in Michigan who were food insecure. They were unsure about their access to their next meals or food for their families. That number skyrocketed to almost 2 million and has been coming down for the past few months. Projections about food insecurity are just that, projections. But we think we will have higher than normal rates through June of 2022 as the K-shaped economic recovery continues. But for those 1.3 million Michiganders who were struggling with food insecurity prior to the pandemic, normal doesn't hold much appeal. A return to normal means trade-offs every month between utilities, rent, food, medicine, and transportation, along with clothes for the kids and the other necessities of life. Who wants that back? No one. How about instead of back to normal, let's go back to normal and beyond. Let's take what we've learned, apply it now, and build the future in front of us so the toxic stress of food insecurity is much like the horrible, stressful field days of the early pandemic, a thing of the past. It isn't back to the future, but it is back to normal and beyond. Join me for this journey when Jerry Brisson comes aboard next on Food First Michigan. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson joins me as normal. Jerry, you're looking great on Zoom, and uh, it's great to be able to do this show with you, an award-winning show once again, so it's great to be with you. We can honestly say multiple award-winning show. I mean, you know, uh, let's, yeah. let's, not, let's not underplay the accomplishment. No, <laughs> never, never. <laughs> I don't. I don't think either one of us have ever been accused of that. But no, I don't think so either. But anyway, great to see you, Doctor. Always good to be here, and uh, always good to be, uh, you know, talking about what is going to help us become food secure Michigan. Right? That's that's yeah. uh, it's it's awesome. It's it's it never gets old, right? 
There's so much going on and so much to learn and so much to do, but we keep making progress step by step. I love the idea of back to normal and beyond. And I would even say that the the gist of our work has been that for for a long time, at least since we started this show, if not before, that that we want to be back to normal and beyond. And it's nice to be reminded that that's who we are and what we do and what we're aiming for. And I think uh, it's a really good time to talk about it. Well, I think so. I, I think, you know, when we when the pandemic hit, we we were talked about the pandemic a lot and its effect and our response to it. And just to remind our listeners, um, on average, we we've increased our distribution somewhere between 44 and 47 percent um, across the network. And that was because we were faced with just about the same amount of increased need uh, from people coming to us, we had to, you guys had to learn how to adapt and, and do distributions differently um, in order to keep the public safe and to keep the, our teams safe. And consequently, we distributed more food than we ever have in our history. And that difference, Jerry, is our record prior to this past year was 165 million pounds of emergency food. This year, we pushed 250 million pounds. Yeah, it's so hard to put millions of pounds into context, right? It's just numbers, 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 numbers. But I think the, I think the important thing for us in this whole network is we, we know we have the capacity to do that now, right? We know we have the capacity to push that much more food through the systems we have. We also know that... On average, people who came to food distributions needed that service twice a month during the pandemic. And and we didn't know that before. We, we, We never came close to meeting the need. We never had an opportunity for people to just come out and get food when they needed it. And when we provided that opportunity to people... They didn't take terrible advantage. They, they used what they needed. They knew other people needed it. And it was a, a really amazingly self-regulated system that worked. And people were very respectful and conscientious. And, you know, uh, who knew? And, and, you know, during a pandemic, you would think if people were going to start hoarding food, that would be the time, right? And you even saw it from the grocery store. People were buying 450 cans of green beans and put it in their basement <laughs> or their attic or the garage or wherever they were going to put it. God knows what they did with all the toilet paper. I'm still waiting to see <laughs> what happens with all that. I just can't imagine. But in any case... Um, you know, there, there there was this sense in the community that we need to hoard stuff. Did not happen in the emergency food world. People took what they needed and not more. And uh, and that's that's a really important learning when you start thinking about systems and the things you need to worry about and the things you can say, you know what, that's not something we have to worry about, at least not first. So, you know, those millions and millions of pounds Really, what they look like is people coming who need some help to make it through the month, getting what they need and taking it home in the tune of hundreds of thousands of people, right? right. Hundreds of thousands of people and getting what they need. You know, it, 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 we did the Mythbusters show a little while back, and we talked about the myth of um, that, you know, not only who's hungry, you know, but also the... Um, what what this whole picture looks like 
And the, and the pandemic really taught us that what it looks like is people just getting what they need and that it's not just about feeding people today, that by helping people take care of what they need today, they can move on to their next success in life. And when we talk about beyond the pandemic and we look at a, a number of pieces of the, of the economic recovery, people are going back to work. They did not lose their homes. They did not have to move to a different community. They did not have to make dramatic changes in their life across the board, in part because they were able to get what they needed when they were in a crisis. Feeding people today enables people tomorrow. And that's so important to keep in mind when we start talking about some of the other things I know you want to talk about, doctor, like public-private partnerships and, and how that drove success and how it's continuing to drive success for our community. So I know I'm kind of on a little bit of a ramble here. So so what's on your mind, doctor? Well, no, I think that's a you're, you're spot on because the point being that the pandemic taught us it gave us glimpses of the depth of need in the community. And it also, with all of the, the, the public and private partnerships that came together from the federal government to the state of Michigan to the community-based organizations like our seven Feeding America food banks that serve all of Michigan's counties, when these three entities came together, and, and that helped look, looked in a lot of different ways, right? There was, there was an increase to the SNAP food stamp benefit. There was pandemic EBT that helped uh, families that had students. Uh, the Michigan Department of Education mobilized uh, and distributed food differently than they ever had before. There were waivers for these programs that came down that, that we were all able to come together under one tent and, and we, we had a glimpse of what the need was, but we also got a glimpse, Jerry, of all the resources that it takes to help someone become food secure and use that as a leverage toward self-sufficiency. So yeah. that's, that's one of the learnings here that I think that we want to talk about. And, and I think the point that I want to bring out to our listeners is that even... With all that the government did, and there are some things that only the government can do, private-based charities like food banks can't increase SNAP entitlements. <laughs> That's the government's right. role. We, don't, we can't yep. do that. So, so what? everything that the government did in order to come alongside of, of American citizens, residents of Michigan, they still... The people in the community and the government, federal and state, still needed community-based organizations like food banks to do more than they've ever done before in order to meet the need. And I think that picture right there should tell us a lot about our future. Yeah, I think so too. And, um, you know, the, the, just talking about one innovation when the farm to families food boxes started um, and that was a program specifically designed to work with food distributors who work directly with growers right to, to to make sure that as there were disruptions in the food supply chain 
communities still had food, especially communities that were suffering from the pandemic economically, right? So, so we wanted to make sure to support the farmers and support the food supply chain, that whole distribution network, so that we wouldn't have to rebuild it from scratch after the whole thing shut down, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I thought that was pretty smart on the part of the USDA to say, mm-hmm. let's make sure we're supporting that whole food supply chain and, and, uh, and there's a way to reach people. And they turned to food banks as one of the major uh organizations with enough capacity and this was again nationwide but certainly here in Michigan and and we helped them make it work and it was a huge reason why we could distribute so much more food in the last year or so so now how do we take that now that that program is essentially over what did we learn right well one of the things Mm. we learned is if you get fresh food that people want and need you can do it at a fraction of the cost of retail. And you can still support the food supply chain from an economic perspective by by taking some of our government dollars and putting it as close to the beginning of the food supply chain as possible and using that to really reach people who need food help. That is a huge savings. Mm. There's a huge potential to think about how a permanent program like that could save the government money while reaching more people. So we talk about we need to do both more and better, both more and better. And that's an example of a program that proves you can do both more and better. We had the same experience reaching school kids. And we know that while they weren't in school, a lot of families had trouble getting to school to get the prepared meals that schools would do. And we said, well, what if we gave them all those meals to take home in the form of groceries? Then the parents can make the meals for the kids every day. The the school doesn't have to worry about that uh, infrastructure. And, and the kids can still be well-nourished, so when they come back to school, they'll be ready to learn. And that worked tremendously well. Again, we were able to reach, I mean, I think it was 10 million meals that went through that program in Michigan. And, right. and it was at less than half the cost of providing a prepared meal. So, you know, again, more and better, more and better. Those public-private partnerships can be both more and better. That's great, Jerry. Love the concept. Let's take a quick break and come back because we're going beyond normal today. We don't want to go back just to normal. We want to go beyond normal so that we can address uh, the programs it takes, the partnerships it takes, so that we can go, we can be do more and be better. Jerry and I are back in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Thanks, everyone. We're back. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here on Food First Michigan, uh, number one rated show, podcast in America, dealing with food security, Jerry. Uh, we don't want to just go back to normal here in regard to food insecurity and what it was like prior to the pandemic, because we had about 1.3 million people in the state, probably almost 400,000 of those were children who were struggling with the toxic stress of being food insecure, not knowing where their next food is coming from. 
And one of the things that we learned in the pandemic that we talked about in the segment prior to this one, Jerry, was that private-public partnerships must increase. And when we all get under the same tent, kind of, and start thinking together, we can really complement one another. But, you know, there are certain things, certain roles. Uh, Rob Fowler on the show recently said that there are policies that government creates that only government can fix. And so I think that's the next thing I want us to talk about is, is we're looking about the safety net. And the safety net really means what? I mean, that there are federal programs, there are state programs that are designed to help people who are, or families who are struggling. One of those programs is SNAP, right? Used to be called food stamps. And all these programs are under what we call the safety net. It's designed to catch people, right? And, uh, and help them and come alongside of them. But what we find is that there are some policies inside the safety net that are really counterproductive to helping people find success and self-sufficiency. And one of those problem areas would be work supports. And there are three programs that make that up. So there's food assistance, there's housing assistance, and there's child care. And by, about by the time, Jerry, you make thirteen fifty an hour in Michigan, all those benefits go away. And we drop people off of a financial cliff, and we de-incentivize people to continue to work and try to earn and do more and be better. I'd like your thoughts. So I think the conversation about the benefits cliff has reached high-level government ears for at least 10 years. This is not a new thing, right? This is something that, that people who administer these programs know about, and, and they know it doesn't work. So you have to ask the question, then why does it persist? If you're doing something that you know doesn't work, why do you keep doing it? Right. I mean, that's the real question. So so if you if you scratch the surface of why, why would people do something they know doesn't work? What you find is that it's more a matter of how do you pay for it? Who pays for it? And what mechanisms do you put in place to make sure that this problem goes away? Because it's not free. Right. It, part of the issue is. Um, is the the just the wage structure overall, and and there are some uh, businesses that 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 are very low margin that just simply can't afford to pay what a living wage might be, and so you've got that situation. You have other situations where people could pay a living wage, but they'd really rather take profits. Well, profit is part of the way our economy is built. That's how capitalism is structured. There's nothing wrong or bad about people wanting to take profits. But nonetheless, if you want to address this issue of having the right work supports in place, you have to be able to describe how everybody wins, not just how some people win, right? And, that, and that's where things get mucked up. They get mucked mm -hmm. up in the process. What Rob Fowler said about that was, then you take the time it takes to unmuck it, right? You've got to, you've got to take the time, and it does take time, right? Now he didn't say that exactly, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna give him credit for That's the a idea. That's paraphrase of Rob. I don't think I've ever heard the word "muck" come out of Rob's mouth, <laughs> but I got it. And I'm really right. glad you know. I'm really glad you can enunciate. <laughs> 
And so here we have what's what you know what Rob described on our show uh, just recently: the problem with term limits. It's complicated to solve these problems when you have vested interests with different ideas about what a win looks like. And in order to develop a, a scenario where everybody wins, you have to sit down and talk about what a win could possibly look like, and you got to be pretty smart to do it. Now, our legislators are smart, but if you don't give people enough time in office to really grapple with the, the many, many, many issues and the complexity around those issues, you end up with people doing their best, which isn't always what is best, right? And there we have why we have programs that we know don't work and we keep doing them anyway. So, so to get to the right policies, you've got to have a clear articulation of the problem, the solution, who pays for it, and how that gets the community to a place where everybody wins. And as long as we develop winners and losers, you'll never solve these complex problems. You've got to approach it in a different way. Wow, that's really I, I really like what you said there. I liked everything you said, but I really like what you said at the end, that if we go at this by creating policies with winners and losers, or people who deserve and people who don't, then we're never really going to have an opportunity to solve a problem that we all believe is solvable. Well, right, and not we all believe. At least we believe it. <laughs> yeah, well, and we want to solve it. There's no. I mean, again, I, you could probably find an exception to this, but in general, there are very few, if any, people who would say we shouldn't feed uh, uh, households with school-aged children. Right? We want those children to survive. We want people to do well. We want success for the community, and it starts with taking care of our school-age children. Right? You, you, everybody knows that there's no question about it. There's two words that should never go together, child and hunger. Who would argue with that? Right? But, but when you start developing policies that actually address that and make that real, now you got to start looking carefully at, well, then what's the benefit to everyone? And how do we look at it? And, and there is a benefit to everyone. The good news is it's not impossible to get there. We just have to get there. So that's why doing more and better. You can't just say more, 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 more. You have to look at what you're doing that you could improve. So at least some of the cost is recouped by doing things better. Right? I mean, again, it's, and, and that, that inspires and motivates people to then do even more. Right. So so I think that's the game we got to be in. And uh, and 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 the reason why these work supports still aren't in place. Now, back to life on the street, when you're doing everything right, you have a job, you've been trained, you're getting promoted and you realize after the first month that you've been promoted that you actually have less income than you had before. Well, that's not a good feeling. That's not a good experience, right? And that's what you mean, doctor, when you say it disincentivizes work. The person in that situation goes, why did I go through all this trouble only to be worse off? Now, you can say, well, but if you take a longer view, you'll be better off. And that's true. But how can you take a longer view when you can't feed your family? That's right. so cruel. That's just cruel to do to somebody. How do you say to somebody, ah, take a longer view? You know what? Your kids are going to be really hungry for, for you know, the next year or two. And, and maybe they won't learn in school as well. But take a longer view. Are you kidding me? You can't say that to somebody. That's, that's, you just can't, right? No, well, I would can't. say this. 
if someone said it to you, what's the first word out of your mouth? Don't say it, I doctor. Can, I, I can't say it on there. <laughs> no, I, I, you, no, you can't. And it's not, it's not, it's not, I don't think that's the kind of culture that any of us really want to live in, in our country. And, and to me, that, that really goes about, says more about us than it does about the people who are in need. And I think that's a reflective question. I do want to just circle back as we close this segment to say that these policies are put in place by legislatures, whether there be the U.S. Congress or our state legislatures. And it is, and it is their responsibility to fix it. Now, our responsibility, because of term limits, is to come alongside of them while they're in office and, and, and spend far more time talking about the solution and building a, a, a process and a plan to solve the problem than just talking about the problem. Yep. And I think that's our responsibility, that's their responsibility, and that will help take us beyond normal which is where we want to go, at least for this show. And, of course, I don't think anybody would ever accuse either of us as being normal. So (laughs) with that, we'll take a break and come back for our next segment where we'll talk about the lack of affordability for some of the most crucial things that families need in order to become food secure. Food First, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry Brisson is back. Dr. Phil Knight here. We're on Food First, Michigan. And uh, Jerry, we're talking about things that will help us skip normal and go beyond that. Because in regard to food insecurity in Michigan, nobody wants to go back to normal. That's where 1.3 million people really lived unsure about where their next food was coming from. I don't think anybody has an interest in going back to normal. Let's go beyond it. Yeah, I it, it, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right, and it's a, it's a good place to land for a for a conversation about what do we want the new normal to be, right? Yeah. What, if we don't want to go back to normal, then what do we want to happen instead, right? So one of the things we already talked about was we need public and private partnerships to be more effective. Another thing we already talked about was we need to be working together to solve problems we all want to solve and take the time it takes to make good policies that actually work rather than doing things we know don't work, right? We know that's that's part of what the new normal should look like, right? Uh, We talked about how some of the government programs that started during the pandemic should continue. And that would provide a huge amount of relief for a lot less cost than what uh, than what pr- programs cost before that. So that's another thing that we've already talked about, the new normal. So then you teed this up by talking about health care and child care and how health care and child care are obstacles to people, not only to food security, but to but to a lot of other uh, things in their life that they want and they're willing to work for. But if going to work means you can't, you you have to have childcare for your for your family, and that childcare is actually more expensive than what you make at work. That the the net sum of that reality doesn't work out for you. You, you it's it's impossible to to stay at 
that job at least. So you could say, well, get a different job. Well, easier to say than to do, right? I mean, fundamentally, there's a lot of people working to get better jobs. There's no question about it. But but do we want do we want people to wash dishes when we go to a restaurant? I think we do. And I think we want people to be happy in those jobs. I think we want them to be fulfilled. I think we want them to feel good about the effort they're putting forward to, to make our life better, right? It's not just their life. It's everybody's life, right? So so we all want to go out to eat and have a good time. And those, those jobs that happen behind the scenes in, in restaurants and banquets, you know, th- those people and the families they support need to have systems that really and truly support them completely, not just part of the way. So how do you do that? How do you, and, and we haven't even touched on healthcare, really focused on childcare there, but a lot, no, of jobs, fine. A, a lot of the lower paying jobs don't have healthcare. So if you can't take a sick day, what does that actually mean? I can tell you two things it means that we learned from the pandemic. If you can't stay home when you're sick, you're spreading your illnesses to other people and they're getting sick. And you're not only driving up the cost of, of overall population health, but you're driving down the, the ability for businesses to have a stable workforce, right? If people have to come to work sick, it, there's a cost to that. But if you don't have health care as a part of your, of your life, right? Well, then you're going to work sick because you can't afford to get to get better. Well, that's not good. We we have to figure that out. And it's not just costing the people who are in those low wage jobs. It's costing everybody when you have whole segments of people that can only come to work hurt or only come to work sick because they have no access to health care. Well, Jerry, I'll give you an example that's happening in Michigan right now. Uh, and, and if you don't mind, you, 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 I'm going to say that, you know, we've been vaccinated and, um, you know, and and my wife, she got the Moderna vaccine and she she got the first shot. And uh, this was an experience of a lot of people that uh, that I know. And it was fine. The second shot kind of knocked her back a step. It took about a day to recover from that. And I think that's been the experience of whatever vaccine you've gotten. Um, Then then that's but there are people in Michigan right now that got their first vaccine that don't want to get the second shot because they're scared of how it will make them feel and they'll have to miss work. And that's a sick day and that's a health that's a that's that's a child care issue, that's a work issue and that's a health care issue. And it directly affects how this pandemic is going to be dealt with. And that's that's not something that's you know, theoretical, that's reality right now that people are having to make those decisions on whether they get the second vaccine because this is where all three of these things work, which is also wage, health care, and, and, and sick days, child care, all, all of these things intersect right here. Yeah, so I, I, I remember a story that you told recently, Doctor, about uh, a conversation you were having. I should probably let you tell this story, but it was about um, uh, uh, a colleague who was complaining that he wasn't able to hire enough workers because the government was providing too much unemployment benefit. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm going to say, and you said, wait a minute, let me give you some reasons why people might not be coming back to work, and why don't you take it from there? 
Well, you know, we talked about this on the show a couple of times, and I did. I was having this conversation with a couple of legislators that are also business owners, and they're hearing from people in their district, it's hard to find people to work. And anywhere you drive in Michigan, you can see Help Wanted signs in stores from anywhere from from small business to McDonald's to 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 larger industries. You can find people are on. The reason, one of the reasons that people aren't going back to work as quickly as possible is because their kids are in a hybrid school situation. And yep. believe it, just, just believe it or not, that schools, particularly public schools, provide child care <laughs> during the day while they're educating our children. It's child care for the working parent. And when those, they're only going one or two days a week and only half days then, that's more stress particularly on a single parent who's struggling with, with transportation issues and work issue, they, I'm not leaving my 10 year old. I don't have one anymore, but when they were 10, there's not one of my kids when they were 10 years old that I would have left them at home alone. Right. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> I mean, and so, well, it, it just lays out that there are a lot of integrated issues, right? And they're all important. Now, what I think the good news is, that means you can tackle them an issue at a time and still make progress. Yep. You don't have to solve everything at once. Now, obviously, if you're in a situation where you need health care and child care and you know, work supports and all of the things that we've talked about on this show, well, then you know, taking things one at a time is probably a little slow for you. And we have to be sensitive to the fact that this is what people are going through and so uh, taking the longer view, as, as we already said once on this show, it can be a little bit cruel for the people who need help right now. Having said that, though, we owe it to ourselves to always maintain a longer view. We've got to make progress where we can. We've got to do things a step at a time and continue to move the needle so that we can provide more assistance to all of the people that need help. And any progress is going to help everyone, even though we know it's not going to do everything for everyone right away. Well, I, and again, I'll, let's close this segment, um, and, and I'll do it with this thought. There are some things that community-based charitable organizations can do and should do, and we should all do what we can do. But there are certain things, policies, legislation, and the, and the administration of those policies and legislation that only government can do. There are certain aspects of these challenges that is the government's responsibility, and there are certain aspects that are uh, community responsibility, and there are certain aspects that are individual responsibility. And I think we can put those under one tent. We can probably make some progress towards solving some of these catch-22 problems that all affect food insecurity. Jerry and I are back in just a moment. Come back and be with us. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here to wrap up this edition of Food First Michigan. And Jerry, we, we talked a lot about uh, what we've learned and how we can apply it so that we don't just go back to normal, but we create our own new normal, as you called it. But it's beyond. We Nobody wants to settle for normal. That's boring. Let's go beyond <laughs> it. 
You know, Doctor, I, I, I have to give a shout out to our producer, Mark, who made a totally hilariously funny comment while we were on the break there. He said, had two of your favorite guests today, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Oh, well, you know what? Um, it is always a joy to, to talk with you, Doctor, about these issues. We have learned a lot and re- just reviewing some of the things that we've learned about what going back to and forward to really means for the people we serve. We love our food bank colleagues and the work they're doing. We appreciate our listeners who are part of making this movement happen. We appreciate Farm Bureau uh, who supports us and, uh, and all the things that make it possible to think about what that new normal is going to be. That's great, Jerry. Thank you. I enjoy it as well, and especially your rants. So it's time for a little <laughs> food for thought. The counsel of one of America's foremost thinkers is appropriate as we end this show today. Albert Einstein is reported to have said, we can't solve problems with the same kind of thinking we use to create them. And while we didn't create the pandemic, food insecurity is a man-made problem. We need to think different, think better, and think together. The pandemic gave us a glimpse of how we solved the riddle of food insecurity. Let's glean from our shared experiences, pool our resources, partner with purpose, and provide solutions by thinking different than when we created the problem. Let's start by realizing the first step in solving many of life's challenges is taking hunger off the table, and we do that by keeping food first, folks. Food first. First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food security.